Hello there, folks. I'm joined by the one and only Wayne Jasper. And, you know, we could go into a, a long conversation about his, uh, his experience and, and decades in the fire service and some of his experience, but I'll throw it over to you, Wayne, to, to give us an idea of who is Wayne Jasper, what's your background, and then we'll, we'll get started on, uh, on our leadership journey to, together. So go ahead, Wayne. Well, I uh, just started out as a volunteer, uh, fell into the role accidentally uh, when there just happened to be a house fire. About five or six houses down down from me and uh, ran down to help. And it was the middle of the night fire. By the time the thing was uh, over with, I'd been uh, recruited onto that department. Uh, this goes back into uh, 1980, 1981. So did a few years as a volunteer firefighter and uh, then became a career firefighter with the Department of National Defense, uh, a civilian firefighter at CP Esquimalt. And uh, put in 30 years there. Retired uh, in 2016, and I moved to the Okanagan to uh, relax and enjoy the uh, enjoy the weather. I wasn't here very long, and uh, actually accidentally found out that uh, one of the departments here had bought one of uh, my department's old trucks and was needing a little bit of help with it. So, what turned out is a quick trip to go and help them. Uh, run the truck, ended up being recruited back onto a department. Uh, I'm now the uh, deputy fire chief on that department with the Anarchist Mountain uh, Volunteer Fire Department in Soyuz. And uh, I'm also a member of the Soyuz Fire Department as well. So many years of, uh, many years in, uh, I'm about to complete my 35th year in the fire service in another couple months. Well, so like a lot of people that we've been talking to, you're failing miserably at retirement. So good work yes. on that one. <laughs> yes. Now, a particular interest to me and probably a lot of people that are, are watching is your background with regard to mental health and self-care. So can you give us a brief kind of synopsis of what that looks like? Because that's, those will be some of the things that we'll unpack through our conversation here. Well, uh, like a lot of things that uh, goes on in the fire service, you know, you kind of find your way through what you're doing and, and sometimes uh, fall into a niche that uh, you develop uh, somewhat by accident. And, uh, Having had some friends over the years that uh, suffered from PTSD, I kind of sat down with them and and started wondering, you know, what is it we can do to to help? You know, we're seeing this a lot. It's obviously something that's been around for many, many years, long before I was even born. You know, we're dating back to the World Wars when it was, you know, they were referring to it as uh, shell shock. And uh, there's always been a, a pretty heavy stigma attached to it in uh, in the fire service and and in any uh, any uh, world there where people just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to admit that there's uh, something going on and uh, they don't want to come out and, and, and ask for help. So I started working with a, a number of people that uh, were going through it and we started putting in uh, the time to develop some programs, uh, created a, a, a very useful program for departments called ADAPT to prevent PTSD. ADAPT is uh, an acronym for uh, awareness, dialogue, and proactive tracking. So the tracking is a very key issue uh, because we've, in the fire service, and, and like any other, uh, any other um, corporate service, seem to track things that uh, are hazardous to your health or your business and, uh, and try to avoid that. So uh, the fire service has continuously tracked uh, hazardous exposures to uh, various chemicals, asbestos, things like that, but they never tracked exposure to traumatic incidents. And uh, one of the first keys in, uh, in getting somebody some help is starting to realize that people are finding incidents that they're going to as traumatic and starting to build, build up uh, you know, a pattern from, from attending these calls. So 
giving people now the opportunity to uh, indicate right away after return from a call that it's uh, they found it traumatic in nature and uh, just simple reporting and and uh, they can either turn that in right away or they can sit on their paperwork in their own locker and see if it goes away and uh, and if not they now have documented records to prove that they've attended some some traumatic calls and uh, have built up that cumulative effect of it without having to be questioned you know relentlessly on what the calls were they now have all the paperwork right there in their hand so this has been something that we've been working on uh, to spread all across you know not only Canada but trying to get people in North America um, I know I've had some contact with uh, members in Australia as well that are starting to imp implement this serve um, uh, protocol and uh, it's it's turning out to be uh, one of the key steps in, in breaking the stigma. Now, because there's so much to unpack there and recognizing that the private sector typically wouldn't have an accumulation of events. And I think we, in the emergency services, have almost... Well, you can only lose money so many times, so you know, maybe that, that can do it, right? <laughs> that, that's, exactly, that's exactly it, not looking after the people, right? And so the, the kind of misperception or misconception is that critical incident stress is a single incident, when I think in both of our experience, well, it could be, but it's could probably be, yeah. more insidious than that. So I'd be curious... You know, as you know, in crisis and in, in the private sector, for example, what would make what would be a an incident or something that would make somebody more prone in terms of you know the the environment that they're going through? So, what would make something a little bit more uh, critical or more impactful for somebody than say examples that aren't, for example? So, you know, we've got a whole bunch of things to unpack there, but just so that we can help other people kind of almost like a checklist for lack of a better word to to see oh this is a situation that might be a little bit different and i need to be even more aware of how i'm feeling and how those around us are feeling well one of the one of the key things that uh, can can lead to uh, this developing it into an issue is uh, dealing with any incident whether it's you know with the fire or whether it's police or whether it's ems or whether it's even out in the corporate world where you're involved with something that uh, can cause a fear of, of harm to yourself, where you're feeling your harm. You could be a bank teller being robbed. You could be uh, uh, somebody that's going through a divorce that's afraid to lose everything they've got. You could be a business that uh, is starting to fold and you're fearing for what you're going to do to look after your family or, or how you're going to look after your employees that have been you know, loyal to you for a while. Uh, it, it all comes down to a, a fear of, of something that you can't control and something that's just going to continue to grow with you. And, and so it was subtle, but very, very important where we tend to think of safety as a physical safety, right? And, and I think a lot of people are like, no, I, I haven't been held up by a bank. You know, I'm not at a bank. I'm, I'm not a firefighter. So this obviously doesn't pertain to me. But what does that look like in terms of the non-physical threats or those other fears that you talked about? Well, it, it's also the uh, it's also the mental aspect. Um, you know, when you're when things are running smoothly for anybody, it's it's a pretty uh, you know easygoing day. You don't build up the tensions inside and the stress because things haven't been going wrong. It goes quite well. Um, you know, you could be you could be tasked with doing any kind of project that just is not going the way you're hoping it for it to do. It could be timelines on a uh, on a construction project that you're not you're not meeting because of, uh, you know, supplies not coming in. And if you're the, you know, you're the one in charge that it's all falling back on. Now you've got uh, all those stresses that are starting to build on you 
that start to put fear that you're not going to be able to overcome it. And, you know, you start internalize that initially, but eventually it can be, uh, it can come outward. And, and, uh, and these, there's just so many different things that can cause that stress. And I think it's safe to say that it's hard to apply one blanket theme or statement across all, because I think in your experience, as is with mine, it's highly individualized. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges where I could have an experience that is the exact same as Wayne Jasper. And my interpretation of it, the meaning I attach to it is completely different than yours. Would you agree? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, is an example of a first, you know, uh, emergency services type of call. You know, we could be going to the same, the exact same call and it might not be that critical a call, but, you know, and, and we see this a lot in, in smaller communities, more so than, than the larger ones where in a smaller community, uh, everybody knows everybody. And, uh, you know, you could be going to a call and, uh, it turns out to be that's your next door neighbor or, or a friend that you're, and, you know, the rest of the crew members might not have met them or might not have known them. But now all of a sudden that stress builds with you because you're wondering how are they going to look after their family now that they're hurt? You know, we got to make sure that these people are, you know, are getting, getting the help that they need and uh, uh, where the rest of the crew, you know, they might not feel that same uh, overwhelming stress from it just simply by not knowing somebody. So uh, some people have the ability to... Um, basically internalize things and, and, and hang on to it. And, and this is where we get that cumulative buildup where others, it can be a single incident and, and it doesn't have to be a major incident. It could be a massive incident or it could be, you know, something so small as a, as a car accident, you know, as emergency responders, the one thing that, uh, that sets us off before we even leave the station is when we hear a, when we hear a call that involves children. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're EMS, police, or fire, uh, as soon as you get a call along those lines, uh, right away your stress is through the roof, your adrenaline is flowing, and uh, um, they might not turn out to be a serious call, but uh, you're affected before you even leave the station. And recognizing that when you say community, that could very easily translate into corporation, you know, large yes. corporations and and all of these things may happen to somebody else. but. In smaller organizations, we're also seeing the impact of these things. And I'm curious now, so if we were to go back and Wayne Jasper, the early leader, you know, when you first got a stripe or two, where was mental wellness or stress management on your list of priorities? You know, when, when you would go to a call, where was it back, back in the day? Well, to be honest, to be honest with you, I don't think it was even there uh, back back in the day. It was just go and do your thing, and and uh, the only thing that uh, was your concern was that uh, you know everybody stayed safe and the crew stayed safe. But uh, you know it's it's that that same adage, you know, and we're running into things while everybody else is running out, and uh, there wasn't really that that fear. Uh, there wasn't really that that stress level for me in there. Um, it might've been for some others, but uh, it never really hit me until I started seeing it in others and uh, started recognizing that this was a real thing and that we've got to, uh, we've got to change some of the things that we're doing and we've got to do something to, to help those that are going through it. And so if, so let's fast forward a year or two and now Wayne Jasper is sitting right here. What has, what have you learned with regard to a leader's responsibility? So we'll start with the responsibility then how they can carry it out. But 
from your perspective, what is the leader's responsibility with regard to self-care, taking care of the people? Because one thing that we often forget, and we were just speaking off camera, is from a business perspective, there's a tendency to focus on the bottom line and, and you know, the business impact. But no matter if it's a fire service or, or bank, you're ultimately, your job is to look after the people doing the job. So what kind of responsibilities in, in your mind does a leader have with regard to that? I would, I would uh, you know, say by, from my recent experiences that the most important thing right now is to recognize what, what you need to do yourself to help yourself first. You've got you to gotta maintain your own uh, ability to look after others. And, and a, a lot of times we're seeing that, that uh, some of the leaders that, that were, uh, you know, are being tasked with some pretty heavy-duty jobs, they're not taking care of themselves, and and this is when things start falling apart below them. Where if you gotta you've got to maintain your own physical ability, your mental ability, your uh, cognitive coping skills. There's just so many things to, that you can do to to start building your own resilience, which you can then pass on to those below you, and and also getting to know what these issues are and and what the common signs and symptoms are. Uh, when somebody is struggling with uh, with some of these tough issues, it, it leads well to being able to help them and to be able to, you know, approach them in something that they might find not very comfortable to approach you about. So you've got to be able to, uh, you know, be very uh, be very fair with people that are that are dealing with some issues, and and you've got to understand that uh, sometimes it's not their fault. It's uh, it's uh, it's what's happened to them, and it's not uh, anything that they're they're controlling because they're not understanding it themselves. So, you know, in, in order to build that resilience and, and learn about it is a very key thing for uh, for uh, you know leaders on the upper level. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the fire service or or the corporate world. You know, you can't you can't look after those below you if you're not looking after yourself. I completely agree. So, why don't leaders? look after themselves. And, and I've got some ideas around it and why over my experience, I've been the last one. So why is that in your experience that leaders typically are the last ones to take care of themselves? When to your point, that's a, that's a pretty critical component of any team functioning is, is the leadership of it. So why don't we? Why don't we take care of ourselves? Uh, that, that's a tough one. You know, I think it almost falls into a couple of different groups where, where you may be somebody that's been placed in that role um, and, and moved up maybe too soon, or uh, you could be somebody that's, uh, you know, just had that determination to go forward and, 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 you know, fight everything, beat everything, change everything, do everything your way. That's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, we have so many different personalities involved. And, and I think that, if, you know, we, we, we might be more inclined to see it in, in those that have been moved into a position that may not quite have been ready for that position. Um, and, and now we're putting stress on them to carry out a job that uh, they, they maybe looked forward to down the road, but weren't quite uh, prepared for it. So it's, it's hard to say, uh, you know, then we've got those that, you know, we've got people that are, you know, incredibly book smart, um, you know, they can go through a book and pick everything out of it. Yet when you put them in place in the real world, it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes difficult to apply what they've just learned. Uh, and there's just so many different combinations of what, what makes somebody a good leader. Uh, it's just not one thing. And, uh, and but recognizing what you're doing for others and, and recognizing what you're doing for yourself. Uh, or what you're not doing for yourself and, and what's harming harming uh, 
you know, in harming what you're doing to yourself, you're you know, ultimately harming those below you. And I think it's often like a badge of honor that if the leader isn't walking around with his or her hair on fire, they're not doing their job, right? And I think that we should break that stigma as much as we can, because in, in my view, the leader should be the least frenetic you know, whether it be on scene or in the boardroom or whatever, because they need to set the tone. But if we get into this, you know, hamster wheel of activity and this badge of honor, then we forget that, you know, we're only human ourselves. And so I think one of the words that we could use with regard to the leader's responsibility or what you can do was kind of empathy. And can you, can you speak to that? Because I think that's... That's, That's a word we didn't hear ten years ago when we talked no, about leadership. No, and, and you know you've got to you've got to be working in a position that, and in a way that uh, you know you recognize you have to recognize you're working with whoever's working underneath you. And, you know whether you're the leader or whether you're the you know the the guy in the mailroom. Um, you're all working for the same common goal, and and you've all got a you've all got a specific task that you've got to do. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it takes a little bit to, to recognize when somebody's struggling and to, to show them that extra hand up to, to get them going in the right direction and to get them through to the next level. So, you know, we really do need to have that empathy is a, uh, you know, it, it's hard. It can take a lot out of you, too, when you're when you have a lot of empathy for somebody and you're trying to uh, to work with them and, and trying to be there for them to help them out and, uh, and, and still look after yourself at the same time. And, and so with regard to, you know, the leader needs to walk the walk with regard to empathy, but would you also agree that, you know, kind of the conversation we just had with regard to leadership, part of it is also demonstrating the fact that this is tough on you as yeah. well. It, it's not an adversarial position. And that's where a lot of times we see that uh, comes, you know, leadership comes across as an adversarial position with those that are underneath you. And, uh, and that, that's, you know, that's the first, first key in, in there are going to be issues developing. So you have to, you have to work in a way that it's not an adversarial position. You, you know, you have to have that open door. You have to be able to uh, be out, you know, mingling with your staff. You, you know, you've got, you got to let them know that, uh, you know, maybe you're at the top. One day you were you were in their position, and uh, things change over time. Obviously, you know principles change, policies change, uh, but everybody has to work with that. So. 